The case we're about to bring you is not for the faint-hearted. It is like nothing you will have ever heard before. The 24th of July, 1967 would, in hindsight, be a bad day for a lot of people. It was on that day that a wicked woman was brought into this world. This is a case of cold, calculated murder by a person who would stop at nothing to get what they wanted. Welcome to the Beyond Evil podcast, where we bring you the most compelling true crime cases from all over the world. Some are disturbing, some are baffling, and others are simply pure evil. Before we begin, we would like to send our sincere condolences to all the family and friends who became victims of Stacy Castor. Those who are still here have a chance to rebuild their lives, but for those who aren't, we hope and pray they can rest in peace. Clay, New York, a small town in Onondaga County. It was also the home of Stacy Castor, on the face of it, a perfectly normal woman from a good family home. But that wasn't to last. In the years to come, Stacy would be given the nickname the Black Widow. Under her bland exterior lay a cunning, devious personality which would live a life of remorseless deceit and betrayal. Stacy Daniels, later to be known as Stacy Castor, was born on the 24th of July, 1967, in a little town called Clay, New York. Her parents, Jerry and Judy, said she was a very intelligent child, loved being the center of attention, and like any other child, loved nothing more than playing games, especially with her siblings, Jamie and Darcy. With three children, their mother was kept very busy looking after the home and the children, while their father worked as a car salesman. Although a busy environment, the children were showered with love by their parents and looked after in the best way possible. Not to say that Jamie and Darcy are unintelligent, but Stacy was clearly the brightest of the bunch. As they did with all their children, Judy and Jerry encouraged Stacy to use the gift that God had given her to make a good life for herself. She took this advice, and after sailing through early education, she went on to pursue a law degree. But this wasn't 2023, and what was considered to be woman's work looking after the home, raising children, was still very much the mindset, especially in some of the more conservative communities. When a woman got married early, she was expected to give up her career and be a stay-at-home wife and mother. This is exactly what happened to Stacy. In 1985, she was a senior at Weedsport Central High School, and she fell in love with a man named Michael Wallace. Stacy saw him as a very kind, funny, and cuddly, teddy bear kind of man. He was six years older than her, but they met through having several mutual acquaintances, including Stacy's third cousin, Nancy. Michael was already a divorced man at this early age. He had been married to Stacy's cousin, Nancy. The marriage had only lasted a few years, although, like most young romances, it was all champagne and roses to begin with, but Nancy hid a very deep secret from Wallace right up to their wedding. She had been cheating on him for a while, and even as she walked down the aisle in her white dress, she was in fact carrying another man's baby. Astonishingly, this isn't what ended the marriage, but it certainly was the beginning of the end. A couple of years went by, and by the time Wallace and Nancy had their own child, the marriage was over, and there was no love lost between them. The couple remained together for a short time for the sake of their young son, but even that wasn't to last. 
Michael, possibly depressed at the state of his life, was arrested numerous times for DUI. He was drinking very heavily and was allegedly abusive to his wife on several occasions. The best thing these two could do for their son was separate, and they did just that in 1984. This time, Michael was not going to rush into anything. Once bitten, twice shy and all that. He and Stacy took their relationship slowly. This worked well. They were very fond of each other and spent plenty of time together. But in 1987, that would change. Stacy and her mom were unfortunately involved in a car accident, resulting in both of them being taken to the hospital. It was then that Stacy was told that she was, in fact, pregnant with Michael's child. The relationship was given a rather violent shove into Sirius. Michael didn't take the news all that well, maybe because of his past experiences and a fear to commit to anyone again, he broke off the relationship immediately, telling Stacy that he didn't want to be a father again. But a mother's maternal instincts are stronger than any man will ever understand. Stacy was not going to get an abortion. She would have the baby and would raise it on her own if necessary. In 1988, she gave birth to a little girl who she named Ashley. After a short period of time had passed, Michael had second thoughts. He returned to Stacy on bended knee and wanted to be a part of the family. After a period of adjustment, Michael was the dad to Ashley that he should have been from the very start, and the three of them had a very happy life together. Even Nancy, Stacy's cousin and Michael's ex-wife, spent a significant period of time with them, bringing along her two children as well. This might seem a little strange, given that one of those children was Michael's, but nobody seemed to mind. In 1991, Michael and Stacy completed their family with another girl, who they named Bree. But what should have been the stereotypically perfect family would not be so for very long. For some reason, Michael bonded incredibly well with Bree, so much so that he wasn't able to hide his favoritism from his other daughter, Ashley. This angered Stacy, who decided that she would bond closely with Ashley, creating a split right down the middle of the household. Despite these problems, life carried on. The wounds that had been opened hadn't healed, but they learned to live with them. Unfortunately for all of them, Michael's previous problems that had started in his first marriage reared their ugly heads again. He began drinking heavily and also had become hooked on narcotics. Stacy doesn't seem to have been worried about him, though. The couple had presented a good image in public together, but behind closed doors they rarely saw each other or spent any time together. Stacy was working as an ambulance dispatcher and Michael as a mechanic. Their hours often meant that they were home at different times of the day, and they could literally go days without seeing each other. When they did, it was just to lie in the same bed together with little or no conversation. Not long after, their relationship, just as we saw with Michael's first marriage to Nancy, was all but over. They were just going through the motions by now. Michael started having affairs with different women, and Stacy knew it. Stacy told a friend just before Christmas of 1999 that she wanted a divorce, but would wait until January to contact a lawyer. Stacy decided that she wanted to see in the new year and the new millennium in relative happiness with her children in their home. But as Christmas passed and the new millennium began, Stacy would not contact a lawyer. In early January 2000, Michael became violently ill. He was vomiting relentlessly and couldn't walk a stray line. Doctors were utterly confused and could not figure out what was affecting him so badly. His body got into such a state that he was almost completely bedbound, too weak to even walk. 
By this time now, Michael was not an old man. He was only 38 years old and had no previous medical history. On January the 11th, Michael and Stacy's 12-year-old daughter Ashley came home from school. Upon walking into their house, she heard what sounded like someone banging on the floor. Entering the living room, she saw her dad having a seizure. The little girl had no idea what was going on and thought her dad was playing a game, just making funny faces. But nothing could have been further from the truth. What Ashley had witnessed were her father's final moments in this world. His fit had been so severe that it killed him. Worried, frightened, and confused, Ashley had no idea what to do. She left the home and went to pick up her little sister from school, but in the interim, Stacy came home and found Michael and immediately called 911. The ambulance arrived quickly, but Michael had long since died. He was pronounced dead at the scene. Stacy rode with him in the ambulance to the hospital, where he would be double-checked for signs of life, but it was hopeless. Stacy's mom had been called to watch Ashley and Bree. When Stacy arrived home, she told her girls that their dad was gone. Ashley later said that there wasn't much emotion coming from her mom. She didn't really seem upset in any way. But this was put down for two reasons. First, Stacy's relationship with Michael had been over for some time, and they were on their way to divorce. Secondly, the girls thought that their mom was trying to be strong for them. As is the case in any unexpected death, a post-mortem had to be carried out to ascertain the cause, but this would prove difficult. Even the pathologist found it hard to discover what had killed the 38-year-old man with no underlying health conditions. The post-mortem eventually concluded that Michael had died of a heart attack, a diagnosis that in hindsight might be considered a little lazy, but more on that later. Stacy was offered a formal autopsy that would be much more in-depth and could provide different reasons for her husband's death, but she refused. Much to the anger of Michael's family, we might add, especially his sister who demanded the autopsy be carried out, but as his wife and next of kin, Stacy had the final say and no autopsy would be granted. A few months later, Stacy received Michael's life insurance, just over $55,000, but it didn't go too far. She decided to treat the girls to a trip to Disneyland, which cost a good bit of money. She, of course, had to pay for Michael's funeral and headstone, and after a few more bills had been taken care of, the money was gone almost as quickly as it had come in. It seems that she was not a person to let the grass grow under her feet. She had a new boyfriend after just over a year, called David Castor, something that people who knew her well didn't blame her for. After all, her marriage had been over in any real sense, and she hadn't loved Michael for a long time before his death. Stacy had apparently been drawn to David for the same reasons as Michael, his looks, his sense of humor, and his caring nature. But David also had a difficult past. He was 10 years older than her and had been born in Syracuse, just south of Clay in 1957. His father was a successful businessman who ran an air conditioning company, which David inherited after his father died. He had been married to a lady called Janice, who he had met in his senior year of high school, but an accident in 1987 would change all of their lives forever. Michael was testing a new dirt bike in a field when he lost control and was thrown off. His son, David Jr., and his wife saw him fly in the air over a long distance, eventually crashing to the ground. Thankfully, he was wearing a helmet which saved his life, but he did not escape without injury. He suffered a severe cerebral episode. While in the hospital, he completely lost his memory and couldn't remember the accident at all. He was repeatedly violent towards his doctors and nurses, which would spread into his personal life as well. 
Months later, his memory had come back, but the accident had left lasting damage. He would have regular, violent outbursts towards his wife and son to the point that he frightened them. His wife later said that he was always a little controlling, a bit of an alpha male, but nothing compared to how he was after the accident. In her words, he became impossible to be around. Life had become so intolerable that his son, David Jr., left home at 16 and joined the U.S. Army. To make things worse, Janice left him a short time later. All of this was happening, perhaps ironically, around the same time that Stacy was planning to divorce Michael. But David was a calculated man, and he came up with a plan. He would hire a female office manager, get close to her, and then ask her to marry him. After two failed attempts, he hired none other than Stacy Wallace. On August 16, 2003, she would then be known as Stacy Castor. From the very start, it wasn't really a match made in heaven, but the couple seemed to get along well enough. From the outside looking in, it seemed to many people to be a marriage of convenience. With David's odd strategy to hire someone, then seduce them, and then Stacy, a single mother of two who was barely keeping her head above water financially, it wasn't uh, all that surprising that people didn't take their relationship all that seriously. But now Stacy had everything she wanted a nice home, a successful husband, and most of all, she was financially secure. But unsurprisingly, this marriage of convenience became a little inconvenient. Even from a young age, Stacy had been a free spirit. She would question authority at every opportunity and refuse to accept instructions, right or wrong, from anyone without a good reason. In this image, Stacy had brought up her own daughters as well, Ashley and Bree, who are now old enough to be independent and think for themselves. As we mentioned, David had been controlling to his first wife, and whether his accident had made it worse or not, this had not changed. After Stacy and her daughters moved in with him, he set down a strict list of rules they had to live by, which, one by one, they all unanimously rejected. This put a huge strain on their relationship and led to many arguments. In August of 2005, a local sheriff's office received a 911 call from a woman who claims that her husband has gone missing after not showing up for work. The lady said that she had not spoken to her husband since 5 in the morning on Sunday after a big fight on Friday evening in which he had locked himself in the bedroom, locked her out, and had not come out since. The 911 operator asked if her husband was suicidal or had talked about hurting himself. The lady says that he told her to get out of the house and take her daughters with her. But then he apparently told her, if you dare to leave me, I'll make you sorry. In case you haven't guessed, the woman on the phone, of course, was Stacy Castor. The argument had allegedly started just before their second wedding anniversary. The couple had planned to take a vacation together to celebrate the occasion, but David wanted it to be just the two of them. Stacy had insisted that the girls would come along as well. The argument that ensued was not your common disagreement between husband and wife. The verbal fighting continued for seven hours straight, moving from room to room. Something else David shared with Stacy's ex-husband Michael was his addiction to alcohol. During the argument, he continued to drink. The fighting only stopped when David took a bottle of whiskey and locked himself in the bedroom. This all happened on Friday night. 
Stacy, as her personality dictated, did the exact opposite of what David had allegedly told her to do about not leaving him. She left home and took her daughters. But after the 911 call, police considered it serious enough to visit the property. Upon forcing entry, police discovered the body of David Castor lying on his stomach completely naked and spread out over his bed. Just like Michael some years before, David Castor was pronounced dead at the scene. But this time, the cause of death wasn't such a mystery. On David's bedside table, there was a bottle of whiskey that was nearly empty, an empty bottle of beer, and there was something else, a small glass which was empty, and another small glass containing a strange green substance. Police examined the bedroom further, and sticking out from under the bed was a blue plastic bottle, one that would contain antifreeze. To an amateur, this would look like suicide, but of course, to the trained eyes of police, it looked like much more. Now, surely no adult needs to be told, don't drink antifreeze. If it gets in your body in sufficient amounts, it forms crystals that attach themselves to your veins and arteries, clogging up blood flow, until eventually they land on all of the body's organs, shutting them down one by one. Police found it suspicious because they had never seen antifreeze used in a suicide before. Most people who take their own lives do it in a way that will cause them the least amount of suffering possible. Using antifreeze in this way would not only be a relatively slow death, it would be excruciatingly painful as the body shut down organ by organ. To make the scene even more suspicious, David kept a gun under his bed, presumably for personal protection. So why hadn't he used that? Police searched the rest of the home, and in the kitchen garbage, they found a basting brush, something that a lot of people have around their kitchen, but this one smelled very strongly of alcohol. Investigators took the basting brush and the glass of green liquid to the lab for testing. Just as they had suspected, the fingerprints on the basting brush only belonged to one person. The glass as well only had one set of fingerprints on it. Both items had only been touched by Stacy Castor. More suspiciously with the glass, the fingerprints were only found on the bottom of the glass, something you might associate with uh, holding out a glass of something for someone else when they weren't feeling well. The basting brush also yielded more interesting results. Along with the alcohol the officers had smelled, there was also antifreeze in the bristles combined with David's DNA. Investigators now got to work on putting together a watertight case. They had only one suspect, Stacy Castor. They knew Stacy wasn't stupid. If they spooked her too early, she might run. So they went about their investigation in a fairly discreet manner, at least at first. It didn't take long for progress to be made. It was discovered that David had recently changed his will, completely excluding his own biological son, David Jr., and leaving everything that he owned to Stacy and her daughters. After the money was paid, Stacy was out living the high life, shopping at the best stores, renovating the house from top to bottom. Naturally, police checked Stacy's past and found another major red flag. They quickly learned of the mysterious illness of her former husband, Michael Wallace, and the fact that Stacy had refused permission for an in-depth autopsy to be conducted. The suspicions of police grew, surrounding the conclusion that Michael died of a heart attack. To take their investigation further, there was only one course of action open to them. Exhume Michael's body. After acquiring all of the appropriate permissions, a team was sent to the cemetery, and in a creepy twist that might give us a glimpse into the mind of Stacy Castor, they discovered that she had buried David right next to her first husband, Michael. The body was exhumed with all of the respect and dignity it deserved, 
Sadly, Michael's daughter Bree was present during the exhumation. Stacy had called Bree and told her what was happening. Bree, naturally upset, didn't believe it and wanted to see it for herself. An autopsy was conducted on the body, which confirmed police suspicions. Michael had not died from a heart attack. He had died from antifreeze poisoning. Some of you may be thinking Michael had been dead for seven years at this point. How much of the body could be left to examine? And you might be right, but ironically, the very substance that killed Michael helped to prove his cause of death. When someone dies of antifreeze poisoning, the crystals that formed in the bloodstream and attached themselves to the person's organs just don't disappear after death. They leave long-lasting and visible scars on the body so unique that there can be no doubt as to the cause of death. Now police investigators had what they needed and immediately went to see Stacy for questioning. Naturally, the police were determined to get Stacy, but they knew from the methods used to kill Michael and David that she wouldn't be a pushover. She was patient, calm, and calculated. Normal interview techniques would not suffice in this instance. They assembled a team, including their most experienced interviewers, and even devised a unique strategy before confronting her. Stacy was visibly shocked to see the police at her door. She clearly didn't have any idea that suspicion would fall to her. As the questioning started, police played it cool, telling Stacy they just wanted to get the investigation wrapped up as soon as possible. Now remember, there had been two glasses found on David's bedside table, one containing antifreeze and one which contained traces of cranberry juice. Police asked, just remind us again, which glass did you pour the cranberry juice into? Stacy replied, well, when I poured the antifreeze, uh, I mean the cranberry juice. One simple question and a little know-how from police had done the trick. One simple Freudian slip, Stacy had all but admitted to pouring antifreeze into David's glass on the bedside table. Stacy, unsurprisingly, also knew this was a fatal error, but she wasn't ready to give up yet. She attempted to take the moral high ground, accusing officers of intimidating her and threatening to call a lawyer. She refused to speak to police any further, and because they had not exacted a confession, police could not arrest her for murder. Yet. Of course, they now knew they had their woman and would pull out all the stops to bring her to justice. She was put under 24-hour surveillance. Her phone was wiretapped, waiting for her to make that one mistake. The walls were falling in on Stacy, and just to turn the heat up a little more, police went to see her daughter Ashley at school. After that visit, Ashley called her mom. The wiretap recorded the conversation. Police had told Ashley that her dad didn't die of a heart attack, but had in fact died of antifreeze poisoning, and they asked her if she had any idea how this could have happened, and could her mom have killed her dad? She said she didn't know anything and was very upset at the news. Remembering back, as a result of Michael showing favoritism towards Bree, Stacy had made a conscious effort to bond with Ashley. The two were best friends. Ashley couldn't believe that her mom was capable of murder. After all, most of us look up to our parents. None of us would want to think that they were capable of anything as serious as murder. The methods used by police may seem cavalier, but they had to apply as much pressure as possible on Stacy. Investigators didn't suspect Ashley or Bree, but they knew that Ashley would call her mom after they visited her. Stacy's voice on the phone goes from calm to much more of an angry tone. Stacy realized now that she was running out of places to turn. 
Being a smart individual, she would have to have an idea that she was under surveillance, and on top of that, even her daughters were considered fair game by the police. In other words, she was as good as under house arrest, and the slightest wrong move would see her arrested and potentially sent to jail for a long time, maybe even for the rest of her life. Stacy was alone in her dark home, curtains and blinds drawn in case she was under surveillance, worried, frightened, bruised, and by no means beaten, though. She wasn't throwing in the towel just yet. This case, believe it or not, is about to get a whole lot worse. Feeling immense pressure, Stacy called Ashley and explained how emotionally drained she was due to the police attention and asked her if they wanted to get together for a few drinks and to relax. After college, Ashley had went to see her mom and the drinks began to flow. They both had drinks from plastic cups and Stacy mixed the drinks herself. But after just a few drinks, Ashley seemed to be heavily intoxicated, crawling off to bed. Waking up the next morning, she had a bad headache and had to get to school. She received another call from her mom later that day, asking if she wanted to go around again and have some more drinks. Ashley accepted again, but that night, things would not go quite so smoothly. Stacy once again mixed the drinks for the pair, offering what Ashley described as a nasty-tasting drink. Ashley refused at first, but drank it anyway. Once again, Ashley appeared to be heavily intoxicated and had to go to bed early. With her daughter in bed and repeatedly throwing up, Stacy didn't seem too concerned. It wasn't until approximately 17 hours that Bree came out of the home and discovered her sister seemingly drifting in and out of consciousness and vomiting. She insisted that an ambulance be called. Stacy at first refused, saying that Ashley's just drunk, but Bree demanded that they call an ambulance. Stacy told the 911 operator that her daughter had taken some pills and that there was still some of them stuck in her throat. She also uttered the words, a full bottle of vodka, Ashley? Really? Bree made another discovery and took one of the paramedics aside. A letter had been left next to the bed. Shockingly, it was a full confession to the double murders of David Castor and their own father, Michael Wallace. The letter continued, As soon as I heard the police were digging up my dad's body, I knew I'd go to jail. That's when I decided to take my own life. But the letter wasn't as cut and dry as it seemed. It wasn't handwritten. It had been typed. So in theory, anyone could have typed it out and printed it off using the printer in Ashley's room. On the way to the hospital, Ashley almost died. If it weren't for the vigilance of the paramedics, she might not have survived the journey. Thankfully, she did. Police were notified immediately. And when Ashley was well enough to speak, they questioned her first asking, what was your last memory from last night? Ashley said that she remembered drinking with her mom from plastic cups. They also asked her about the suicide note and the confession. She denied writing any such letter. This time, the police didn't bother with surveillance, nor did they have the patience to wait for her to make another mistake. They acquired a warrant, and finally, seven years after the death of Michael Wallace, on September 14, 2007, Stacy Castor was arrested. December 7, 2007. Stacy Castor is indicted on one count of second degree murder and one count of second degree attempted murder and one count of a plot to present a forged will. Her trial began on January 12, 2009. 
Stacy hired Chuck Keller as her defense attorney, and both of them stuck to Stacy's version of events to the letter. Kelly maintained that Ashley had written the suicide letter and was responsible for both murders, then tried to kill herself. They even hired a private investigator to dig into Ashley's past and find anything that would incriminate her. Remember, this was Ashley's own mother trying to dig up dirt on her daughter's past. The private investigator did find one thing. A few years ago, Ashley had written a note to an ex-boyfriend who had broken up with her, stating that she would kill herself if he didn't get back with her. It was a bit desperate, but the defense had nothing else, and they ran with it. Ashley took the stand and brushed this off as a juvenile teenage drama. During her questioning, Ashley was asked outright, Did you poison your father with antifreeze when you were 12 years old? She replied, No, I did not. Did you poison your stepfather with antifreeze? No, I did not. Next, the prosecution turned to the suicide note. They had language analysis experts look at the letter. They compared the language Ashley used in her day-to-day -day writing with that used in the note, and they did the same thing with Stacy. It was an expert opinion that the letter was more than likely not typed by Ashley, and the language used was much more similar to that used by Stacy. But most damningly, investigators found three separate draft copies of the letter that had been typed. Whenever you save a document on your computer at home, what does it have? That's right, a timestamp showing when the document was created and when it was last edited. The various versions of the letter had been typed when Ashley wasn't even in the home. They had been done earlier in the day when she was in class, surrounded by witnesses. The prosecutor, Mr. Fitzpatrick, also said that the note couldn't have been written by Ashley because she only found out about the antifreeze after police visited her at the college on September 12th. The note itself made reference to the police visit to Ashley's college on the 12th, telling her that her father had died of antifreeze poisoning. Computer analysis showed that the letter was written before 2.37 that day, which is when Ashley left college. In other words, she couldn't have written it. Mr. Fitzpatrick asked the jury one simple question. Which is more likely? A 12-year-old girl takes it upon herself to murder her father, and five years later, her stepfather, or that a wife chose to murder two husbands for financial gain. I submit to you that the answer to this question is as obvious as it seems. Even as the trial progressed, Stacy was unwavering in her denials. If anything, she dug in deeper, giving ever shorter answers to questions and maintaining that her daughter was the murderer. Although they couldn't wear her down, the case did speak for itself. The prosecutor argued that for a 12-year-old girl to murder her father in such a long, drawn-out way, she would need to be mentally ill. Stacy tried to dodge the question and refused to answer if Ashley had a mental illness. The fact is, no child could concoct such a well-thought-out plan in this way at the age of 12. When it came to David's murder, Stacy did try to claim that Ashley was mentally ill because she had become distant and withdrawn after the death of her father. A very poor argument. What child wouldn't be affected by the death of a parent at such a young age? Stacy was trying to argue that her daughter wasn't mentally ill when she killed her father with antifreeze, but she was mentally ill after using the exact same method all over again 
on her stepfather five years later. Nothing she said really made any sense, but she remained emotionless and chillingly calm throughout. The trial lasted until February 5, 2009. Stacy spent most of that time answering questions with, I don't know. But this wasn't helping her. It was only backing her into a tighter corner as Mr. Fitzpatrick pointed out endless inconsistencies in her version of events. On February 5, 2009, the jury was sent out to deliberate. They returned in just three hours. Stacy Castor was found guilty of one count of second-degree murder, one count of attempted second-degree murder, and one count of trying to forge David Castor's will. Unfortunately, the police were unable to charge Stacy with the murder of Michael Wallace due to the amount of time that had elapsed since the death and a lack of witnesses. All eyes in the packed courtroom were fixed on Stacy. She sat solemn, eyes closed, as the guilty verdicts were delivered by the jury. March the 5th, 2009, Ashley is given a chance to read out a statement to the court. I hate my mother for ruining so many people's lives. What made her think that she had the right to play God? I have no idea why she did it. I hate her for leaving me to find my dad dying and for letting Bree find me. I never knew what hate was until now. Even though I hate her, I still love her. It's so confusing. Stacy Castor was sentenced to 54 years behind bars, 25 to life for David's murder, a further 25 for the attempted murder, and a further four years for trying to forge the will. In a last twist, Stacy would not serve out much of her sentence. On June 11, 2016, aged 48, she was found dead in her cell at the Bedford Hills, New York facility. The cause of death was listed as a heart attack. Ironic? Right up until her dying day, Stacy Castor refused to show any humility or remorse. She didn't take any responsibility for her crimes and maintained her innocence right to the end. Cases where the word evil can be justified are normally associated with high-profile murders. In this case, Stacy Castor was right up with the worst, and she definitely deserves the title. She was every bit as cold and ruthless as any murder we have talked about here on Beyond Evil. It is frightening to think that had she varied her method of killing or even realized that antifreeze left its own clues in the body, she may have escaped suspicion, potentially free to marry her next victim. The American press dubbed her Black Widow. She got close to people out of convenience and necessity, the aim, monetary gain, and when she was finished with them, she simply got rid of them and moved on. As always, here at Beyond Evil, the victims of the crimes are our main concern. Michael and David may have had their faults, nobody is perfect after all, but they did not deserve the long, drawn-out, painful death that was inflicted upon them. Neither of them was very old and had many years of life ahead of them. Michael's daughters, Ashley and Bree, are very close and live happy, normal lives to this day. They are surrounded by family on both sides who have always taken care of them. David's son, of course, was devastated by his father's death, but he continued his career in the military and also lives a productive life, fortunately with his mother still by his side. We hope that all those left behind in the wake of Stacy Castor can live long and happy lives. Rest in peace, David Castor and Michael Wallace. 
If you found this story compelling, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen, and please leave a five-star review if you would like to show your support. Also, don't forget to hit the notification bell to stay up to date each time we reveal a new shocking case. Until next time, stay safe and keep your eyes peeled. You never know what's lurking in the shadows.